Go ahead, grab your Bibles, go to Ephesians 2 there. So let's deal with the elephant in the room. We are the walking wounded, the, the, the few and the brave who are here right now and are, many of us are probably just like, I just needed to get out of the house. So we're glad to, to have given you the opportunity to be here. Please continue to be praying. Uh, obviously, you just got to look around and you know that uh, there are a lot of things going around right now uh, in our families and in our loved ones, and so we need to be praying for them and keeping our ears open. If there's something we can do to come alongside them and, and serve them, it would be good for us to do that. Just by way of quick announcement, next Sunday, after our second service, we are going to be having our Discover Uniontown lunch. So if you are a guest with us, if you've just been recently attending here at Uniontown and you want to get to know who we are and what Uniontown is all about, we want to invite you to get signed up for that lunch. You can stop at Connections on your way out this morning and, and, and get signed up for that. We'd love to get to know you, get to meet you, and, and spend some, some time hanging around with you. So um, as, as this, this passage this morning is uh, it's a dumb description, but it's very gospel-y. It, it's like the... the summation of the gospel in all of scripture, just in 10 verses, just right there. It's the whole thing. And as I was considering, so you're supposed to, as a, as a speaker, a preacher, anybody who does any public speaking at all, you're supposed to capture the attention of your audience when you begin. And um, I tend to just throw that out and just be like, come on, let's just jump in and get to work. Um, I mean, my, my, my incredible stature and good looks usually gain your attention to begin with. So um, <laughs> We'll call that the COVID fog. But <laughs> uh, as I was considering that this morning, one of the things that came to mind is like just, just the admission that we all have to make that there is a significant problem in our world today. And it doesn't take very long to see it. And it, it's not a virus. It's not politics. It's not uh, world governments. Um, it's, it's, it's not even, well, it's, it's not of all those things that we tend to just navigate to right away and point our fingers at. It's none of those things. And, and if you don't know what the actual problem is, when you start throwing solutions, not actually doing anything to help. And so, so as Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, he, what he does, he says, let me explain to you clearly what the actual problem is. It's none of the externals that we tend to navigate towards or gravitate towards and be like, that's got to be because of them. He says, no, let, let's start right away at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There are two things that we need to look at there. The first is this. The problem starts with you. Not anybody else. Me. Definitely me too. But, but, but not a person you know. Not other people who you hear about on the news. Not people of history. Not people in power. The problem begins with you. We live in an age, in a culture that, that likes to think that we're always right and everything is always somebody else's fault, right? And so the tendency is, is we can stand here in our churches and point at the liberals. We can point at the media. We can point at Hollywood and say, they're the problem. They're depraved and they're destroying family values. And what's ironic is the liberals and Hollywood and media point back at the church and say the church is loud and judgmental and unloving and hypocritical. Because we're so quick to point the finger 
that we don't actually understand the problem is us. So for many, um, every broken relationship of your past, you always see yourself as the victim. So my, my parents were idiots, my boss was a jerk, my last roommate was unreasonable, right? Your first wife was loud, your second wife was pushy, your third wife was naggy, your fourth wife was controlling, your fifth wife, but me, I was... There's a common denominator in those, and I'm telling you, that exists in all of us. The problem starts with you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, is what Paul says. Dead, not just sick. Our world tends to think that, that people are born pretty good, uh, maybe a little bit of a bent towards not good, but they can be rehabbed by the right teacher or the right environment or the right example. But, but, but Paul says very clearly, the Bible's teaching, God's teaching, is not that we're just sick and need a little help. We are dead. We are decayed to the fullest extent. We are completely powerless, and a dead man can't do anything. And as dead, we've been separated from God. And there's no amount of goodness that can fix it. There's no good deeds that will ever get you out of it. No good man tried, or no dead man tried a little harder and became alive. The Bible says, not not, not only are you dead, he continues, you're also captives, verse 2. Uh, sorry, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We were all captives. There's three descriptions that are given here. He talks about how we were following the ways of this world, this world system, the traditions of this world, the philosophy of this world, the empty humanistic idol worship that we exist in in our culture and in our society. And, and within the ways of the world, there are three prominent ways that kind of rise to the top that tend to, to take precedence over all the other ones. And, and we pursue three main things. We pursue money, we pursue sex, and we pursue power. Pursue money. We want the world is just absolutely obsessed with more money, getting more things, more possessions, having more toys, sex. The world is pursuing desires of our body, even if it's bad for us or bad for other people, or even against God's very design. And power, we want to accumulate the wisdom, the academics, the the finances. We want to be the best looking, the most religious, the the, the most wealthy so that we can exercise power over other people. And all three of those things, money, sex, and power, are a demonstration of us following the way of the world, which is I am number one. Everybody else, take a back seat. The Bible teaches that you were dead you were captive because you got stuck in that current of following the way of the world. You were stuck in that current following the prince of the power of the air. Let's talk about Satan himself, the one who rules over the way of this world. Satan, the murderer, the liar, the thief. And, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of people will overestimate Satan and his ability. And they blame Satan for everything. It rained on me today. It must be Satan. I didn't get the promotion I wanted. Satan's trying to hold me back. But I'll be honest with you, for us in this room, I think far too many of us underestimate Satan. I think far too many of us forget that his desire is to destroy us. I think some of us 
picture in our mind's eye the person who follows after Satan? I mean, think about that for a second. If I was just like, so picture in your mind for a moment a, a Satan worshiper, somebody who follows Satan. What, the image that comes to your mind is pretty significant, isn't it? It's quite pronounced. You probably have a, a scary-looking dude wearing all black and makeup, funny boots, maybe tattoos with weird symbols all over it, and he sneaks back into the woods and sacrifices the missing cats of the neighborhood. That's the person who follows Satan. And, and what we need to be reminded of, no, in fact, the person who follows Satan is the one who follows after the ways of this world by placing themselves first. It says you followed after your flesh, the craving of your nature. Your lives are controlled more by what you desire and think you want than by anything else. And so, so the Bible teaches us, I mean, listen, you were dead. The problem is you were dead. The problem is you were captives. You were enslaved. And when you're enslaved, one of the greatest difficulties of the person who's been taken captive is when they begin to believe they're not captive. They forget that they've been taken hostage. So I don't know how many of you remember this. Some of you, this will be before you, but, but back in uh, 2002, the world was just kind of swept over by the story of this 14-year-old girl named Elizabeth Smart in Colorado who had been kidnapped in the middle of the night. And, and they looked for her for months and they could not find her. Um, after nine months of Elizabeth Smart um, being um, gone, um, somebody thought they saw her uh, in a small town with a man and a woman, and so they called the police. And then somebody else called the police, so the police went to investigate, not thinking much of it. And, and what they found is that this was, in fact, Elizabeth Smart with her captors. And she had, over the nine months, assumed a new name. Her name was now Augustine. She had assumed a new identity, a new lifestyle, even a new language. It was forced on her. But even at that point of the police coming to her rescue, she failed to recognize they were rescuing her from something. So as the police interrogated her, I mean, they were just kind of talking to her, saying, you're Elizabeth Smart, aren't you? I mean, she was, she was wearing a wig and these huge sunglasses and this uh, head covering to make sure nobody could recognize her, and she just denied it over and over again. I'm not her. I, you're Elizabeth Smart, aren't you? I, no, I, I'm not. Uh, you're Elizabeth Smart. And so finally, the, if you listen to the interview of the officers who were talking to her, they were positive it was her, and they were starting to get frustrated at the same time trying to understand what she had been through for nine months. And so finally, one of the officers gets to the place like, listen, do this for your family, do this for the hundreds of people in this town who have been looking for you for months. Do this for the country who's been obsessed with knowing if you were okay or not. Do it for other people. You are Elizabeth Smart, aren't you? And her response in her new language was, thou sayest. There was this change that occurred in her as she had been with these captors for nine months where she had forgotten that she was in fact being held hostage she had settled into this new routine, into this new lifestyle, into this new language, into this new identity. And here's the problem. You and I, as we continue to follow after the course of this world, the ways of this world, we tend to forget that we too are being held captive. We think we're okay. It's really hard to rescue somebody who doesn't think they need to be rescued. We're dead. We're captives. But then he goes on, he says, we're condemned. We're condemned. He says at the end of verse 3, we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. 
by nature, by our very birth, we are objects of God's wrath. It's the condition of our hearts. Um, I don't know that I have to prove this to you, but let me share something that will help prove it to you, that we are all born sinners. Look at two-year-olds. How many of you parents taught your two-year-old how to lie? Oh, no, no, no. How many of you just are so frustrated because you follow your two-year-old around the house and having to listen to them say constantly, yes, yes. Oh, no, no, no. It's always no, no, or mine. I mean, I don't think moms and dads sit in front of their children like, mine, that's mine. And your children learn that, right? Who taught your kid to throw food? All right, that one I'm guilty of for. But... We have this awesome spaghetti trick. You know that when you can tell spaghetti is done when you take it out of the pot and you throw it and it sticks to the wall. So I taught my kids that, which was really cool until Stephanie and I went away and a babysitter had made spaghetti for the kids and we came home and it's like, there is so much spaghetti on the ceiling right now. Um, so lessons learned. But, but, but we don't have to teach our young people. We don't have to teach our children how to sin. They know how to do that from the very beginning. Because we're all born sinners, it's in our nature. It's a condition. It's not action. So in other words, you've got to understand this. We sin because we're sinners. It's not that we do bad things and then that makes us bad. We do bad things because we are bad. So, so in other words, it's not that we steal and cheat, and so that makes us greedy. We're greedy. That's why we steal and cheat. It's, it's by nature, But the tendency for us is to attack the action of sin. Let's talk about the sinful choices and the sinful actions, and let's instead of dealing with the heart of it, even in our own lives, we like to attack the the, the action of our sin, not our sinful nature, because honestly, if if, if I'm a doer, which I am, and most of us are, then then I can undo sin. So so I know I'm a sinner, and that's an action, so let me counterbalance that with I read my Bible, um, I, I don't cheat on my taxes, I'm nice to my kids, I tell my wife I love her, I only swear during Ravens games, especially lately, that's understandable, so... Uh, but I'm, other than that, I'm doing really good. And we end up playing that game where we set the, 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 the checklist up thinking that if I can achieve all of these things on my checklist, then it covers the fact that in reality, I don't really love God. And I'm still spiritually dead. We are a child of wrath. That means literally you are going to inherit the wrath of God. That's your inheritance. And that is not what you want. Paul says, let me explain to you the problem. The problem is you. You're dead. And you're being held captive. And and the wages of your sin is going to lead to judgment, condemnation, and rightly so. Because in your sinfulness, in your trespasses, you are sinning against and committing treason against the only one true God. So, Happy New Year. You guys are all glad you came out of the house this week. (laughs) But actually, it is good news. It actually makes the next phrase one of the greatest phrases in all the Bible. Look at at verse 4. And if you're somebody who marks your Bible and somehow you have not marked verse 4 yet, 
tear it up. Because Paul walks through this and says, listen, you were dead. You were being held captive. You were going to inherit the wrath of God and condemnation. You would deserve nothing. This, this, this um, lo- logical flow, I guess, is leading to this end of destruction and chaos and misery. And then it gets all the way to verse 4, and Paul stops and says, but God. Isn't that an awesome phrase? It's like, Whoa! But, but, but God, it's probably the greatest phrase in all the Bible. God interrupts this logical flow with something called mercy. Man, that's grace. I love this. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for us. You can spend hours just on that one verse. Who's rich in mercy, who loves to hold back from us what we actually deserve. Because of his great love that he had for us. What's love? Sounds like a bad Hallmark card. What's love? Love is defined for us in 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not, not that we have this affection for God. But God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. This is the love that Paul is talking about. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for us. He has made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God didn't have to do anything, but because God is rich in mercy, because of the great love he had for us, he looked at us who were dead and he made us alive. He made us Alive, not, not like you were in the, the casket just starting to figure it out and, and be like, oh, I think I want to be alive again. And God's like, cool, why don't you come alive? No, 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 no. While you were still sinners, while you were dead, God breathed into you yet again the breath of life. And he made you alive. You were captives, remember? You were following after the ways of this world, the prince of the power of the air, your own flesh. And then in verse 6, he said to us, He's also raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. (laughs) You were captives. You were being held hostage. But in the finished work of Christ, God freed you to sit with Christ. You have been set free by the unfailing love of an unchanging God. I love the, the imagery of raised us up and seated us with him in the heavens. Think about the Thanksgiving tables. If you had a multiple, multiple table system in your home for Thanksgiving, the munchkins get one table, the adults get the other. And you've got that poor middle school kid who's like, I just want to be at the adult table. And then finally that one year, it's like, come on up. But here what, what happens is you're, you're still a kindergartner. And God has raised you up to sit at the table with Jesus. You, you've gone straight to the adult table, not just so they can take a cute picture of you either, but the, you can dine with those who love you. You can dine with Jesus himself. You are now free, though you were a captive. You were children of wrath, destined to inherit a judgment that was deserved. And yet... Verse 7, in the coming ages, he will display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So now instead of deserved judgment, you're going to inherit endless kindness. Uh, I've used this quote a number of times, but John Piper says about this passage, when eternity ends, 
God will have run out of ways to show you kindness. God is going to continue to demonstrate and prove and display his kindness to you, the exceeding, surpassing, outstanding, extraordinary riches and wealth, the abundance of his grace towards us. So, so now when you step back and you think through just those first seven verses, right? Paul says, this is where you were. You were dead. You were captives. You were condemned. There was nothing you could do about it yourself. You were hopeless, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for you, made you alive, set you free, and has given you an eternal inheritance that will never run out. And as you actually try to figure that out, and, and, and I don't know, I'm a, I am, an, I'm a hopeless romantic. My wife would tell you that. It ruins me. Because in my mind, I always see things going a certain way. Like, I know, if I get her a dozen red roses and one white one, it'll look really cool. And she'll just be like, oh, that's so beautiful. And usually what ends up happening is I get a dozen red roses and a white one that somehow dies before she sees it. So you get this dead rose in the middle. And it's like, oh, I saw that going a whole different way. And as I try to understand and comprehend, I've made the comment to her a number of times when we were first dating particularly, it's like, all right, so you sick of me yet? Are, are you bailing on me? I don't understand. I do not understand how you still have love and affection for me. I know who I am. How do you put up with me? As you try to understand how it is that God decided to withhold his judgment for you and instead allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to be sacrificed for you. As you try to wrap your head around that, and you try to explain it, and you try to figure it out, what you're going to come to the conclusion of is, you can't. Verse 8, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. This is God's gift, not from works. No one can boast. If you did nothing to get it, you can't brag about it. You haven't been promoted by your works or by your potential. You have been saved and you didn't do it. Now, most world religions today are going to tell you, do your best, work hard. If maybe you're good enough for him, then, then maybe God will be kind to you. Maybe he will love you. Maybe he will forgive you. So you try to do something to reach to God. And the reality is the blessed hope of the gospel and, and grace is, is God did something to reach to you, even though you didn't deserve it. It says, in grace, can be accessed by faith in Christ alone. Faith, faith is, is not a religious feeling. It's not a habit. It's not a virtue. Faith is the belief that Jesus Christ has done it all and that it's finished with his work, not yours. And then that belief has a response from your heart, and that's trust. And that trust means you are casting yourself on Jesus and Jesus alone. The old evangelism explosion question. If you were to stand before God right now and he was going to ask you this question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? And for far too many of us, we're like, well, I tried really hard. And, and actually for far too many of us, it's I tried to believe really hard. I tried to have good faith. And the reality is that's the wrong answer. The answer to that question, the only answer to that question for all of eternity has been and will always be because of Jesus. The only reason you should let me into your heaven is because 
Jesus took my place. And through his finished work, you showed me mercy. You gave me grace. Faith doesn't mean you pray a magic prayer. Faith means you cry out to him in the quietness of your heart that I am a sinner and I need a savior. And I am trusting my soul into the hands of Jesus Christ, the son of God who died, was buried, and rose again from the dead for me. I know there are people in this room who need to do that. I will not beg you. My God's far too big for me to have to come to you to beg you to put your faith in the the promised hope of his son, Jesus Christ. The payment for your sins was far too costly for me to demean it where I would beg you to come to Christ. Instead, let me tell you, today is the day of salvation. When you are confronted with who Jesus is and what he did for you, you are making a decision Maybe means no. There are people in this room who need to come to Jesus Christ by asking him to be their savior, by falling on their faces before him and confessing with their mouth exactly what their life demonstrates every day, that they are hopelessly lost and can't do anything about themselves. But God loved them and provided a sacrifice for their sins. And that Jesus finished that work on the cross. You know, what's cool is that's just the start. Look at verse 10. Talk about another verse you could spend hours on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We'll unpack that as we walk through the rest of Ephesians. But let me just say this. What God has started, he will finish. He says we are his workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece. The word for workmanship is poema. It's where we get our English word poem from. God has begun to write this beautiful masterpiece. And he's composing you into something that is going to give him the greatest glory. And in the end, it will be complete, it will be perfect, and it will be beautiful. And it's all because of Christ. Our world has a huge problem. It's not a virus. It's not a politician. It's not an educational system that's broken. It's none of that. The greatest problem is this. There is sin that crashed into our world and broke God's perfect creation. And the only solution isn't education, It isn't trying harder. It's not better morals. The only solution is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? And if you do, have you recognized the beautiful work he's begun in you? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you that in it we hear the good news of our salvation, the gospel declaration that it has been finished. Father, I thank you that there is no question that what you have started, you will complete. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we can know your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that you would be with the ones who are with us who, who may not know that freedom that's been offered to them in Christ. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they rest in him and him alone. Father, for those of us that have known you and love you, I pray that you would awaken us to the realization 
that on that day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, every promise you made came true. Lord, may we find ourselves overwhelmed with the fact that you have called us, you love us, that you are with us, that we experience your power and your grace each day, each week of each month. May we live for you and love you more. For it's in Christ's wonderful, matchless name I pray. Amen.